Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. Last time I featured part one of my interview with Dr. James Agolia of the Harvard Medical School class of 2021. I had the privilege of interviewing him regarding an essay that he had written for his medical ethics class at Harvard. The subject matter for the essay was physician-assisted suicide, which threatens to corrupt medicine itself, along with the society it purports to serve. The last show focused on the part of the interview dealing with the whole notion of autonomy as a basis for the legalization of assisted suicide. Addressing the matter of human autonomy, St. John Paul II once stressed that human freedom of choice, our legitimate autonomy, must be guided, if we are to exercise it rightly, by truth. Human freedom and autonomy are not unlimited, nor creative of the moral order. Human freedom is exercised rightly and in a way conducive to human fulfillment or perfection only when guided by truth. When human autonomy is conceived as the creator and arbiter of good and evil, of right and wrong, we are no longer able to guide our choices by truth, but only by subjective and changing human opinions. And human autonomy so conceived gives birth to the culture of death. In short, human autonomy, human freedom of choice, is limited. It is valued precisely because we can exercise it with a view to our flourishing or fulfillment as persons living in communion with others. Today I will play part two of my interview with Dr. Agolia. Let us first, as always, begin with prayer. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer, prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy, prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls, will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced by a culture of life. O God, you sent your Son to testify to the truth. Let us not say, as did Pontius Pilate, what is truth? Let us respond instead as Jesus did in John chapter 17. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And I consecrate myself for them, that they may also be consecrated in truth. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before I present part two of my interview with Dr. James Agolia, I would like to read some additional excerpts from his essay regarding physician-assisted suicide, which deals with the fact that many who opt for assisted suicide do so because they do not want to be a burden to loved ones. I do so while again taking some liberties of slight editing and the omission of references made by Dr. Agolia in his essay. The original essay can be provided to individuals if desired, subject to the approval of Dr. Agolia. Here is what Dr. Agolia wrote about being a burden. In 2019, 59% of patients who died using assisted suicide in Oregon cited being a burden on family, friends, or caregivers as an end-of-life concern. Brittany Maynard, the young woman who ended her life in Oregon after her diagnosis with a brain tumor, expressed this concern. She said, I probably would have suffered in hospice care for weeks or even months, and my family would have had to watch that. Utilizing assisted suicide, continues Dr. Agolia, could be a way of preventing family from experiencing the intense physical, mental, and emotional toll of caring for a suffering loved one. But this reasoning is problematic in several ways, Dr. Agolia explains. First, it presupposes that the effects of spending time with a suffering loved one are entirely harmful. While it is true that caregivers experience great demands on their physical, emotional, and mental health, caring for a suffering loved one may have beneficial effects. Stephanie Packer, a young mother with terminal lung disease, speaks forcefully on this point in the following statement. We've grown as a family. We've grown as individuals. Our kids are empathetic in ways that I haven't seen in other kids their age. They just love in a different way that most children don't love. And it is so beautiful and special. As a mom, it is beautiful to see how their hearts have been formed. And I am grateful for that. Says Dr. Agolia, patients who believe they are saving their family from suffering may also be preventing them from learning how to be with a suffering person. Why should a suffering person be viewed as a burden? Or more precisely, why should the burden of caring for a suffering person be something that we should want to avoid? As Gilbert Mylander, prominent American Lutheran bioethicist and theologian, points out, If you love someone, that is, willing the good of the other person above your own, 
This necessarily entails that you be a burden by them in many ways. For example, parents are burdened by having to feed their baby, change their diapers, having to take time out of work to go to a child's basketball game, and having to take care of their child when he or she is sick. Why should behavior at the end of life be different? The notion that one is being selfless by avoiding burdening one's loved ones with end-of-life care goes against the bonds of love and family. And it speaks to a larger cultural devaluation and marginalization of suffering at the end of life. In an article for First Things, an influential journal of religion, culture, and politics, an article entitled, I Want to Burden My Loved Ones, Gilbert Mylander wrote about burdening his wife with the task of being a health care proxy. He wrote, I hope, therefore, that I will have the good sense to empower my wife while she is able to make end-of-life decisions for me. Though I know full well that we do not always agree about what is the best care in end-of-life circumstances, that disagreement doesn't bother me at all. As long as she avoids the futile question, what would he have wanted? And contents herself instead with, the difficult enough question, what is best for him now? I will have no quarrel with her. Moreover, this approach, I think, is less likely to encourage her to make the moral mistake of asking, is his life a benefit to him? That is, a life worth living. And more likely to encourage her to ask instead, What can we do to benefit the life he still has? No doubt, this will be a burden to her. No doubt, she will bear the burden better than I would. No doubt, it will only be the last in a long history of burdens she has borne for me. But then, mystery and continuous miracle that it is, she loves me. And because she does, I must, of course, be a burden to her. And now, part two of my interview with Dr. James Agolia. We pick up the interview while we discuss the whole notion of autonomy. And you also mentioned in your paper that it's all well and good to have um, patient autonomy, but physicians have autonomy too. Right, right. And that is definitely true, um, because I think that one of the main points of the paper was that, you know, autonomy is good and is a great value in the doctor-patient relationship, but it is not without limits. And in our society, we, we can't have everybody just having complete autonomy in whatever decision they make. 
especially if that autonomy comes up and rubs against other people's autonomy, mm-hmm. such as the physician, mm-hmm. such as the patient's family who may or may not be in agreement with this and mm-hmm. could have negative effects on them, and other patients, because as one of this, uh, I think you know about the story of uh, J.J. Hansen. Yeah, I want um, you to uh, review that. Yeah, I mean, he was saying, like, you know, your decision is not just for you. Your decision affects me, too. Exactly. Um, because of what you decide, if it becomes more commonplace, you know, people might think that this becomes the default. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a lot of the um, situation with um, Brittany Maynard, which you mentioned in your paper. And uh, she was a woman with a brain tumor in California. And at that time, she... Uh, it wasn't legal in California for uh, assisted suicide, so she went to Oregon where it was legal, and she chose to kill herself. And people, sort of the general opinion across the country was, well, she's an adult. That's what she wanted to do. She ought to be able to do what she wanted. But it has a, a ripple effect on others. And I had um, seen the example of uh, a woman who lives near me. Uh, uh, I'm in Massachusetts, and... This woman, Maggie Carner was her name. Uh, She lived in Connecticut. She had a brain tumor too, and she felt pressure uh, because Brittany Maynard had chosen to kill herself, and she kind of felt that she had a duty to do the uh, same kind of thing. So we don't live in vacuums, and we certainly don't practice medicine in a vacuum. Thanks for sharing that experience with Maggie Carner. That's, man, that's that's really terrible that she felt sort of had to fit the precedent of uh, Brittany Maynard's case. Yeah, she, she kind of felt that she had the almost the, the duty to die or the duty to do the right thing to, um, you know, alleviate uh, other people from being uh, burdened. But uh, speaking of that, I, I like the way you kind of turned that whole notion on its head when you talked about the whole issue of um, people feeling like they're a burden to their families. Yes, and in that, I'm, I'm pretty indebted to this essay, this guy's name, uh, Mylander, who, uh, who wrote this essay called I Want to Burden My Loved Ones in mm. First Things. Really recommend it. It was published in 1991 in this magazine called First Things, I Want to Burden My Loved Ones by Mylander. But um, he basically says we see burdening others, and I think this is one of the major concerns for people who do want to commit physician-assisted suicide, is they don't want their suffering. Right to burden their family members. And right. I think that's a pretty common concern for a lot of people. Yes, yes. I mean, and it makes sense. That's a very selfless, it's on the surface, it appears to be a selfless notion of, you know, I, I want the best life for my family. I want them to be happy. I don't want them to have the sorrow of, of seeing me pass away and have pain. And But we have to think more about what we're doing there by allowing people to not to see your suffering or avoid that suffering, we might be avoiding the experience of allowing the experience of suffering for other people to have compassion with you, to be with you, to not abandon you at the end of your life. Suffering can have some beneficial effects, um, even though in and of itself it's never a good thing. Absolutely. You know, the whole idea of of reversing the, um, the concept of burden, I always think about, I'm sure you saw the the movie the the passion of the christ you know with, i've never you've seen never that. seen I would that. like to see it oh <laughs> yeah. man you got yeah. Me on that one yeah well i you know it seems like uh, you know 
most of the people I know, but I, I also know that when I was in college and medical school, I didn't go to any movies. So, um, <laughs> and then as a as a child, I, I guess this came out. You were you might have been in, still in elementary school or something, and it's definitely not something you want a elementary school uh, person looking at because it's very bloody as uh, Mel Gibson movies tend to be. But I always think of when, when I hear this whole notion of burden, I think of the scene where the cross is laid on Jesus' shoulders by the soldier, and uh, he reached up and uh, kissed the cross. And that was... That was an unbelievable scene for me because, obviously, most people don't want to be burdened with crucifixion, but he welcomed it because he knew he was setting an example for, for people for years to come, as well as just the act of uh, redeeming them. And I, I think we, we think things wrongly when we want to uh, have people avoid being uh, burdened. I think of an example of my own mother, who's 99 years old and living in assisted living, and she sort of is a burden to a lot of uh, people who have to take care of her, but it's a burden that everybody who works with her actually loves. I just got through meeting with my... uh, daughter who's one of her caretakers and there's six or seven other women that uh, take care of her and they love that burden it really gives them uh, a sense of meaning so so I like that you mentioned uh, in your essay that we should let people learn and experience uh, by being uh, burdened Right. No, thank you for that, Dr. Rollo. And I mean, it, I, from your experience with your mother, too, it, I mean, it sounds, it kind of, I think, is confirming the the fact that, you know, in our society, there's a lot of people, a lot of people who on the surface could seem to be, you know, they're dependent on other people more than maybe we would like to be or have maybe less like, quote unquote, abilities than like, you know, that we would like to be. Um, but that doesn't make them any less dignified as a human person and it shouldn't make us you know marginalize them in some way right and i I just think that we have kind of lost the understanding of of our ability to you know be connected with people and despite how unable to do certain things we are it doesn't lessen our dignity as a human person in any way right and i can't really think of anybody who emphasized that better than uh john paul ii who like even as he was dying from parkinson's and Mm -hmm. could barely do anything speak or move or anything still was there and and he had a lot of people had to care for him for sure and it didn't lessen his uh his personhood yeah i mean it's it's a really it's a real privilege to um uh, take care of people who um who need help i mean that's that's why one reason why you and i went into medicine right <laughs> because we, right. we right. wanted to be uh burdened with people's uh problems and try to uh, relieve their burden the other thing that I liked about your essay is you, you talked about the whole notion of consent and that somehow if people consent to being killed through assisted suicide, that that kind of makes it okay. I wonder if you could talk about that and how you approached it in your uh, essay. 
So I think consent has become a big part of medical ethics today, and rightly so, because it's it's certainly necessary to have patients, you know, understand the treatments and appreciate the consequences of them right. and be able to make a good decision. It's yep. interesting, though, that we feel that patients at the end of life who are suffering mentally and physically have the ability to consent to physician-assisted suicide without question. Mm-hmm. So that's, well, maybe set that aside. The other part of it is, aside from consent, is that our only way of determining whether a treatment is good or bad for a patient? And I think the answer is no, right? We, we decide, like, whether certain p- treatments are indicated for a patient or not based on their condition and, and other factors in their life. What's indicated for one patient may not be indicated for another with the same condition. Mm-hmm. But I think that that kind of points to the fact that consent is not the sole determinant right. of what is right and what is wrong mm-hmm. in the doctor-patient relationship. And a doctor may not offer certain treatments to a patient for the patient to consent to if the doctor doesn't feel that they are indicated. Mm-hmm. They're relying on us to to kind of uh, lead them in the right direction. And and uh, the, the other thing you mentioned, is, which I thought was a great example, is if a patient were to consent to have a sexual relationship with a doctor, that wouldn't make it okay, would it? No, yeah, that's. I think it's a great example that I actually borrowed from another essay. But yeah, it's. I think it points to the notion that you know consent is well and good and is important, but that's not the only thing because we can say that that action, sexual intercourse with the patient, is wrong in and of itself because of that action. It's not the correct relationship. So I think it's a great example. Yeah, especially if you're in a in a power relationship, you you can't rely on the notion of consent if you are, by definition, in, in unequal roles as a as a, you know, a doctor patient relationship is. Right, and that's why I think it's it's definitely an open question as to whether a person who is at the end of life and suffering and maybe pressured by outside factors is really able to consent to physician-assisted suicide. Right. Yeah, they're, they're under duress, and it's um, very hard to be free to make a, a uh, true choice if you are being burdened and you are under uh, duress. I think the other thing that struck me in your essay was that, again, you kind of turned things around and, and put the argument on its head, and you said that by actually complying to a request for assisted suicide, you are, by doing that, you are abandoning the patient. Right. And I think that uh, that's kind of drawing from a definition of abandonment as not being with the patient at the end of life. Right. Not, uh, I think one of the sources that I had said abandonment is leaving the patient without care. Mm-hmm. Um, if physician-assisted suicide removes the possibility for the physician to be with the patient at the end of life. Right. And there's no necessity for care anymore because the patient's not there. Right. So it's to me, I think it depends on whether or not you think physician-assisted suicide is part of that care or not. I don't see it as part of that care, but I think others would. Yeah, I think, um, um, you know, you talk about you don't want to abandon the patient. You want to show compassion, but as you alluded to, the word compassion means to suffer with. And if you leave the patient to his own devices, you give him a prescription of uh, lethal medication, 
and say, go home and, you know, you can take the pills whenever you want. That, to me, is not compassion. That is mm-hmm. abandoning the patient. And most of the time, some people, I think, are under the um, illusion that the doctor is somehow with the patient and helps them take the medication. And that's really not the case in the vast majority of times. They, they take the medication. They bring it home. Uh, they uh, are either by themselves when they take it, in which case patients... Uh, families find them dead on the floor perhaps or maybe there are malevolent family members around who will coerce the patient to take this uh, lethal medication so really having a assisted suicide is um, is not maintaining solidarity and it is uh, abandoning the uh, patient this concludes part two of my interview with Dr. James Agolia. The Lord asked Cain, Where is your brother, Abel? He answered, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? How would we as physicians and as a society answer the question, Where is your patient? Will we say, I do not know? I gave him a prescription for lethal drugs because he asked for it. He exercised his autonomy. He gave his consent. He did not want to be a burden. Will we not hear in reply, What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the soil. The 2021 assisted suicide bill is now before the Massachusetts legislature. It is euphemistically called an act relative to end-of-life options. Call your state representative and state senator today at 617-722-2000. Tell them we already have end-of-life options. They are called hospice and palliative care. They are called walking with your brother in compassionate care and welcoming the burden of his suffering and helping to alleviate his pain. Tell them you want your doctor to continue to be a healer, and a comforter, not a killer. Tune in next time for the third and final part of my interview with Dr. Agolia. And until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first do no harm. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rollo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrollo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember, first do no harm.